Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. Before we get into Revelation 19, do you know that's that chorus... Um, here I am to worship, here I am to worship, here I am, yeah, that one. And there's a tagline in that song that says, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Yeah, you know it. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. Let that sink in. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. It's beautiful, you know. I think Jesus uh, is nothing like I am as a husband. I, I want Karis to know how much it cost for me to love her. Hey, honey, did you see, did you see the garden out there? I, I got a hurt back, and Superman's out there doing the garden for you. See, isn't that nice? Hurt back. Yeah, husband of the year right here. See? I, I want her to know how much it costs me to love her. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? I love that. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. I imagine that I might ask Jesus, Jesus, what did it cost you? And I imagine that he might reply with a twinkle in his eye, it really doesn't matter now that we're together. We can't ever overestimate the kindness of Jesus toward us. It's simply stunning. And when I realize that I get to spend forever with this one, my breath is taken away. There's a, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul, he said this, he said, Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Notice the word were. We were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, now catch this part, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Whoa. Let's look at that last part there again. Read that with me. And raised us up with him. See it? Raised it. Read it so you remember. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
You are seated with Christ right now in the heavenly places. This is your position in Christ. It means that you have authority. It means that you reign with him. He shares his authority with you. You, child of God, you reign with him. You're seated with him. You say, well, I don't, that doesn't make any sense because I sure don't feel like I'm seated with Christ. I don't feel like I have any authority. I don't feel like I'm reigning anywhere. Well, right. But your position is that you are seated with him. See, the, the kingdom of heaven operates very differently than the world does. You, you already know that. In the world, you have to earn your place. In the kingdom, it's grace. In the kingdom, you, in, in the world, you have to work yourself up to something and um, qualify for it. In the kingdom, God gives it to you, and then he empowers you and equips you, and he begins to work in you to fill that position. So your position is that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, reigning with him, ruling with him right now. Hang on to that because that will come back in a moment as we read Revelation 19. And then look at that second part. Why? Because he wants to spend forever demonstrating his kindness to you. Wow. You mean I get to go to a place where the almighty God of the universe spends forever looking for ways to express his kindness to me? Sign me up. I'll take it forever and ever. And not just, and of course, the only word that Paul could think of to describe it is immeasurable. How, how do you begin to limit what an infinite God can do to express his kindness to his people for all of eternity? I, it's immeasurable. Words don't describe it. Isn't that remarkable? And, and this, my friend, is, is what we uh, get to be a part of, you know? Man. It seems that everything the devil does is to drive a wedge between you and Jesus. Because he knows that there's a wedding coming. And he's doing everything he can to spoil it. And he does everything he can to drive this wedge, you know? It's time for you and me to fight as hard for this marriage as Jesus does. But if you're like me, you, just, you, you feel sometimes like the weight of the world is so heavy and there's just so much fighting against you and it just sucks the fight right out of you, doesn't it? And, and it's so easy to be deflated. It's so easy to be defeated. It's so easy to think that... Really, honestly, it's easy to wake up some days and just say, Jesus, just come back and pull the plug. Just be done. Please, over, done. Why do we have to do this any longer? Isn't it? You ever feel like that? Okay. Today is the day that our study in Revelation reaches its zenith, its culmination. We've been saying all along that the theme in the Revelation is to put the fight back in you 
and put you back into the fight. And we really haven't, I know, made much of an emphasis of that throughout our whole study, but it's been underlying the whole time, and today is when it really comes to a head. And I sense that what the Holy Spirit wants to do as we look in Revelation 19 and 20 is he really wants to just put the air back into your tires. And he really does. He wants to... He wants to Put the fight back into your soul that today's the day, today's the locker room speech, today's the day that you just go, yes, I'm ready to fight. Today is that day. That regardless of what's taking place around me, I know that I walk in the authority that is mine in Christ Jesus. I'm owning it now. I'm owning it. And the world's not going to take it from me. That's today. Are you ready? All right. Awesome. So, as we get into Revelation 19, we're going to discover something that it's a little weird. Is that a surprise? You say, well, all of Revelation is weird. Yes, it is. The whole book is filled with weirdness. And today, no less. Because today we have this odd kind of thing happening where it's a wedding ceremony. Oh, try to wrap your brain around this. It's a wedding with a fight and then a judgment. How's that for a wedding? That's a, that's a weird wedding, ain't it? Right. I mean, I've done a lot of weddings as a pastor, and the weirdest wedding I've done was probably 30 years ago. I had a groom that literally fainted because he had stage fright, and he comes out. You know, we were behind the place, come out, and he sees the people, and he dropped. A sweat, beads of sweat. The poor guy was so nervous. He literally fainted. And we literally had to send everybody out of the room. They started the, rehe- they started the reception. And we did the wedding. We did the vows with just the bridal party because he couldn't stand in front of the, of the people. Like, that's my weirdest wedding story that I've got in my, my career as a preacher, right? Wow. I've never had a wedding where a fight broke out and where there was judgment. So this tops the weird wedding stories right here. You know, you don't ever picture a wedding Do you promise to love, honor, and cherish? I do. And you will go to hell for all of eternity. Like, that's not, that doesn't go in a wedding. But that's sort of what we have here, and I hope you get this picture. So I'm going to try to skim it, but it's so hard to skim because it's such a fun passage to read. But Revelation 19, and we've got to get the whole story for this. It says this, after this, now after what? Remember last Sunday, Babylon's fall. Babylon crushed. It's it's now, picture, we ended last Sunday, the angel takes takes Babylon like a big rock, throws it into the water, and now it's sinking. So after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged in her, on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So what are they celebrating? Babylon's fall, aren't they? They're like, yes. Okay. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Do you remember those guys? We met these guys in Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders and the living creatures. And here they are again, amen, hallelujah. 
Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell to his feet to worship him. But he said, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. You worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a, blood, in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may, what? Eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the, see, the wedding was just getting good. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Good times. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Huh. So you lock them up and then you let them out for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They hadn't received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They, they came to life, and they reigned with Christ. They reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And and you wonder if reigning with Christ for a thousand years is Paul's, is John's way, apocalyptic way of expressing the same concept that the Apostle Paul did in the Ephesians scripture that we read, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and we reign with him, perhaps. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but Fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them to hide. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So you want your name in that book, don't you? So you, you, you see the scene. Let's try to paint the scene here a little bit because there is a scene being painted for us. So it starts with these three hallelujahs. Chapter 19 opens up. Three hallelujahs. And we've seen the number three before in Revelation. We had three woes back in the trumpet judgments. And we saw three woes last Sunday during the fall of Babylon. Remember the kings, the merchants, and the the sea captains, they all cried woe. And now here we have in chapter 19, we have three hallelujahs. And they're celebrating the fall of Babylon. That's the first thing. And then the third hallelujah celebrates the bride. She's coming. And you can see the start of the wedding ceremony. And, and you can imagine it, I'm sure, in your mind that, you know, here, here she comes. And you hear this voice, uh, verse 7. Verse 7 says, or verse 6 uh, says that this third hallelujah comes from this great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder shouting. We've seen that language before too, haven't we? We've seen it each time that the throne of God, each time that the presence of God enters a place, it shakes it up with loud peals of thunder, with shaking, rumbling. And and even chapter 1, verse 15, tells us that the sound of Jesus' voice is as many rushing waters. And so so here you have this, this voice, you have this sound coming from the throne of God, and they're they're worked up and they're excited. What are they worked up about? Well, she's stunning and she's beautiful. Verse 7, here comes the bride. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
fine linen and bright and clean was given to her to wear. Oh, she's beautiful. And we ended last Sunday with this. Remember, she, we contrasted Babylon and all of her terrible filth and stuff. And then you have the bride of Christ, and she's white and clean and beautiful. And so he's drawn a contrast between these two women. And the apostle John is caught up in the wonder of it all. Like he, You can just see him just chin dropped. She is amazing. And he's caught up so much so that in verse, in verse 9, this angel has to come to him and almost snap him out of it. And the angel commands him. The word right is a command. It's not a suggestion. So it's, it's like as though John has just lost track of himself. And the angel has to remind him, hey, write. And so he picks up his pen. And what does John write? He writes, wow, well, blessed is anybody who gets invited to this wedding. <laughs> he is right in the moment, you see. That's a party you want to be invited to. Do you see that, my friend? Jesus wants to marry you. The history of the world, everything that has happened on this planet from the first dawn until now, it culminates at this wedding between Jesus and his bride, which could include you. Are you invited? I pray so. And this scene is so amazing that John falls down to worship the angel, doesn't he? He's just caught up and poof. And the angel tells him, no, don't worship me. Worship God. See? Stay focused, John. Stay focused. Stay with me here. And as, as impressive as the angel is, John then looks to see the groom. Whoa. And he's riding on a white horse. He's faithful and true. He judges the nations with justice. His eyes are like blazing fire because they are so passionately intense towards his bride. He wears not one crown, but many crowns. In fact, he wears every crown because he's the king of kings. He wears them all. He has a name on him that no one knows but he himself, it says. Did you catch that? Did that seem weird? It does. Because you think, well, yeah, that's Jesus. I already know his name. So what's the name that nobody knows? What's John saying there? I think little history. Uh, in the ancient world, magicians uh, used to entertain and wow audiences, you know, with their tricks like they still do. And magicians would often claim in the ancient world that if they could just get the name of a deity, the name of a demonic presence, that they could control and manipulate that spirit to do whatever they wanted it to do. See? And so here's John saying, Jesus, this one, has a name that nobody knows. You see what he's saying? This Jesus cannot be coerced, cannot be conjured up and manipulated by some cheap two-trick magician in the backside of the carnival. No way. This is the one. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords. He is the top. There is nobody else beside him. Jesus is it. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He rules the world, and Jesus is wearing white. And his army that following him is wearing white, which symbolizes purity and beauty for sure. But they're wearing white because it's a wedding. 
That's what you wore to weddings. See? And the bride enters, and then the groom enters with his groomsmen. And you can just picture, you know, the organ, the crescendo. It's beautiful. All of heaven is celebrating. And then all of a sudden, here comes the weird part. This angel steps in. Hey, birds. And he calls the birds. He goes, hey, come on. You need to eat the flesh of the kings and the generals and all the people. And the You think, we were just having a good time at the wedding. We're coming to the important part here, and you've called the, what's happening? And then you look over and you see the two beasts, and we've, we've, we've met the two beasts. We've talked about them already. So here they come to the end, and you've got this, the beast. We've learned one is human government, the other is false religion, but the two beasts, and there they are, and they're scowling at the groom and his bride. And then what does Jesus do? He He's, I picture that he sort of, you know, steps aside. Let's go take care of this. And he pounds the two beasts in the face and sentences them to hell. And you think, well, great. Now we can continue with our wedding, right? What's happening there? It's a callback. Last week we looked at chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, where we saw the first beast along with uh, its girlfriend, Babylon, um, seducing all of the kings of earth to come together to fight against the Lamb, remember? And that was the, actually the Battle of Armageddon. We, we met that last Sunday. And so, where, and it says in chapter 17, verse 14, it says, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be who? His called, chosen, and faithful followers. So we're part of that fight somehow. But it doesn't seem like we fight much, does it? <laughs> Seems like Jesus does all the work. But we're in there. We're in the picture. And now here you are. He's, called, he's bringing it back. And John is now giving us the rest of the detail. This battle of Armageddon, this, this showdown, you see. It's taking place where? At our wedding. Don't overlook that. Remember, we learned at the beginning who is seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and reigning with him even now as we speak? We are. It's our wedding that gets interrupted by these dirtbags. It's our wedding. It's our wedding that gets interrupted. Right? But check this out. Go back to chapter 19. Look at verse 20. But it's almost nondescript. But the beast was captured and the false prophet, and the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So it's not much of a fight, really, is it? Which makes sense when you're dealing with Jesus, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the second person of the Trinity. It's really not much of a fight. Jesus doesn't even get dirty. <laughs> He's fine. And so you think, well, perfect. We're ready to go back to our wedding but there's another problem that arises. Chapter 20 opens with the dragon, the devil himself. And he shows up, and uh, Jesus has to deal with this one. In chapter 20, it opens. you got this angel with this huge chain. He seizes the dragon. He throws him into the, throws him into the abyss for a 1,000 years. And then look at... Chapter 20, verse 3, it says, After that, he must be set free for a short 
time. So he's locked up for a thousand years, and then God lets him out for a short time. Hang on to that for a second, because that's important. But let's talk about this thousand-year period of time for a second, okay? Because it's caused scholars and church people a lot of heartburn over the years. And you're probably going to be disappointed with what I do with this, but here it is anyway. So there's three different views on the millennium, it's called. These thousand years, the millennium. You have the amillennial view, you have the premillennial view, you have the postmillennial view. Okay, these are big words. The amillennial people believe that basically the millennium is symbolic. It's not a literal thousand years, um, and, and that's it. The premillennial people believe that Jesus returns to earth, and then that ushers in the millennium. And it's a literal thousand years where Jesus reigns on the earth with his people, and they see it literally that way. And then the post-millennial folks, they, they believe that it is a literal thousand years, but that the return of Jesus happens at the end of the millennium. And then you go into forever. So it concludes at his return. But, but see, here's the, <laughs> here's the deal. This is the only time in the whole Bible where this is even mentioned. So it's really hard to come up with some kind of solid doctrine on this. And, and let me just give you, if, somebody, if somebody's going to be dogmatic about it, you probably don't want to trust that person. I just be straight up, just give you a heads warning, right? Just don't trust somebody who's dogmatic about something that the Bible only mentions like twice, you know, in one little couple of verses. If it's not important enough for God to explain and for God to link to something else in Scripture so that we can understand it, then it's probably not that big a deal to God either. See? So, so I don't want to make too big a deal out of the millennium. Listen, it's kind of fun to talk about it. It's great. Listen, we can chat and debate it, and I love that kind of thing. But at the end of the day... We certainly don't want to divide over what happens in this thousand-year period of time. And there is another way, though, that I think that we can look at it, and it's probably worth mentioning. Um, we've been studying the book of Revelation, you know, as a church, and we've been trying to look at its whole context. And as a church, we've been trying to avoid the conspiracy theories, haven't we? We've done a pretty good job at that, haven't we? Pretty good job, right? So we're trying to stay away from those because we, we want to look at Revelation with these four legs. Remember the four legs we've talked about at the very beginning of this whole study? You've got the four different ways that you look at this book. We look at it as a, as a piece of literature. That's the first leg. In other words, it's written in the apocalyptic genre, isn't it? Which means he uses numbers. He uses symbols to, to capture your attention. And to, so that you can remember the truths of what he's teaching. And the second leg of the chair that we've been looking at is its prophecy, meaning it is the word of God. So God is saying something to his people through it. And then the third leg of the chair that we're trying to look at Revelation through is that it's a personal letter. So it's actually written to real people. And, and so, which means that they had real issues, and John, who's writing it, is trying to address those issues. So he wasn't thinking about you and me when he was writing it. He was thinking about them when he was writing it. So, so it can't mean something to us that it didn't mean to them, right? So that's the, that's the third thing. It's a letter. And then, and then fourthly, we learned that, it's, um, that the theme of the book is the exodus, 
that there's a big theme through the whole book, and it's all about God delivering his people, bringing them out of the earth, and bringing them to himself, rescuing them to himself for all of eternity. So this is the theme. So we said those four legs. We've been trying to look at it through those four lenses, I guess, if you will, right? And one of the things that we've learned is that John has a soft spot in his heart for the martyrs. Makes sense. Because who was John's audience? They were getting killed. They were living under Emperor Domitian, and they were, they were literally being slaughtered because of their love for Jesus. And so John is writing this, and he has got a super soft spot in his heart for these martyrs. And, and, we've, and we have seen that he specifically addresses them throughout the book of Revelation, and he does it in these things called the interludes. Remember, again, you're going to look at it as a literary. We're going to look at one of the other legs as the literary leg, right? So literarily speaking, he's writing it, and he puts these interludes throughout the story, and each interlude focuses on the martyrs. Each interlude asks the question, well, what about God's people who are suffering right now? What about them? Yeah, there's all this judgment. There's all this painful stuff going on. Yeah, but what about God's people who are suffering? See? And so we've seen this in chapter 6 and 7. The, we meet the martyrs, and they ask, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And then between the, the sixth and the seventh seal, the first, you know, the seven seals, between the sixth and the seventh seal, we saw the 144,000 white robes and... Right There they are, following Jesus, asking the Lord, they're, 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 how long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our blood? Chapters 8 through 12, when you come into the trumpet judgments, between the 6th and the 7th trumpet, you got these two witnesses, and they're killed for their faith in Jesus, remember? And what happens? They represent the church, and, they're the, and what happens to them? They end up getting raised again. God raises them again from the dead. He vindicates them before the world. See? Pretty cool message if you're a martyr. And then you come to chapter 14, and the martyrs, where are they? They follow the lamb wherever he goes, just after we met the two beasts a couple weeks ago. And you see these guys in white robes, and they're following the lamb wherever he goes. And then in chapter 17, after pouring out the seven bowls of wrath, John introduces us to the great prostitute, Babylon. And she deceives the whole world with her luxuries. And what, hap what does she do? She gets drunk on the blood of God's holy people. He's addressing the martyrs. But now here in chapter 20, we come to the end. And what are the martyrs doing? Don't miss it. Look at verse 4. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. What do they do? They came to life, and they reigned with Jesus for a thousand years. That's what happens to the martyrs. See that? Do you, do you see it? So you're suffering for Jesus. And he's, and he's leading you through the whole book. And yeah, there's bad. You've got blood, and you're, and you're waiting. It's hard. And she's getting drunk on your own blood, you know, on your blood. It's terrible. And then look at you at the end. You are reigning. He says, so say one way to understand the millennium is simply this. 
It's just one of the interludes used in the text to give a word of encouragement to those who die for Jesus. John tells us that they're beheaded, which doesn't necessarily indicate the way that they died, although maybe they did. But in the Roman Empire, beheading was reserved only for Roman citizens. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul, when they put him to death, they beheaded him. And it's why the Apostle Peter was crucified. Paul was a citizen. Peter was not. And so, in a sense, by John saying that they had been beheaded, he might be indicating their citizenship. Their citizenship, you see, is not in the world. Where's their citizenship? In the kingdom. See? He's, he's pointing to who they truly are. They reign with Jesus. But then their reign gets interrupted. In verse 7, Satan is released after the thousand years. And, and he calls in these two characters, Gog and Magog. Weird names, aren't they? And they come and they gather for battle against Jesus and his people. And we read about, you can read about Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel talked about them. Truthfully, again, we're not 100% sure as to who they were. We think they probably represent like uh, barbarian tribes from the north and uh, maybe, maybe the Parthian army who also lived to the north of the Roman Empire. And, and many people in the ancient world, they feared the Parthians. And so that might explain why a lot of Jewish texts, why they portray Gog and Magog as like these uh, mythically, you know, like as these mythical enemies of Israel. That's kind of how they worked. It came to be over the years. So it makes sense that John, who's a Jew, would maybe bring them in here at the last battle and refer to Gog and Magog, these two enemies, you know, who hook up with the devil to come against God's people one last time. But you notice it's quick. Fire comes down from heaven, devours them all. The battle's done. The devil gets chucked back into the fiery pit, never to be heard from again. And you say, well, why not just leave him in there if you've already got him in there? Why let him out for a short time? That makes no sense to me. The key, I think, is in the name and, and what happens next where the dead are judged. So first of all, in verse 7, he's called the Satan. We, we say Satan. I think it's technically Satan, but he's Satan. You know, Satan is really not his name. It's what he does. The name Satan means accuser. It's kind of like, you know, we, say, we refer to Jesus Christ, right? And, and like Christ is his last name. It's yeah, like you're not going to find Jesus in the seas, you know? It's just not going to, you know, it's, it's technically it's Jesus the Christ, and Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. So he's Jesus, the anointed one. That's really what it is. And so here, Satan, Satan, is really not like his you know, formal name. He's devil, the Satan. He's the Satan. He accuses. It's what he does. See, there's always a definite article in front of it. Actually, in the text, there is in the original in the Greek. There's a the in front of Satan. It's, he's the Satan, literally, is what he is. So he's the accuser. That's important. So he's allowed out of the abyss. Why would he be allowed out? He's allowed to take his role as the prosecuting attorney in the final judgment. And, and 
Again, we don't want to get stuck on the timeline because that's happened to us before. Because you think, if you're reading verse chapter 20, you say, wait a second, Satan's judged, and then there's the judgment of the dead. And Satan got thrown into the lake of fire before the judgment of the dead. See, we're thinking in a timeline, but remember, it doesn't operate in a timeline. So he's just telling us what happened to the devil, and then snapshot over, here's the judgment. So the devil is at the judgment. Verse 11, John sees the great white throne of judgment. Okay? And here you have everybody gathered before the throne of God for judgment. Now, the millennium, I said, nobody knows about because the Bible doesn't talk about it that much. It's just found here. Judgment, my friend, is from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. I think it's interesting that we make such a big deal out of the millennium and really nobody knows what it is. And we love to downplay the judgment. But the judgment is crystal clear. In Daniel chapter 12, the dead are raised to face final judgment. Some go to everlasting torment, others go to everlasting life. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a story about sheep and goats. Sheep are separated from goats. The goats go off to everlasting torment. The sheep go off to everlasting life. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the Lord comes and he judges the motives of every man's heart. He judges your motives. That's an intense judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, man is appointed to die once. After that, to face judgment. So being judged is really not the question. The only question is the outcome of your particular trial. Every one of us is going to be judged. How's your trial going to go? We've all got one coming. Every one of us does. Verse 12 tells us that the books get opened. Notice that it's plural. There's books. Well, probably books on my life alone. I mean, are you, like, I got volumes, you know, of sins. Where do you want to start, right? I mean, books are opened. See? And then, what do they say about you? What do your books say about you? They're the record of every sin ever committed, right? Your sins, my sins, recorded. And where is the Satan? He's there. He's accusing. He's there as the books are opened. He's there to make sure that you get damned to hell. That's what he's doing. He's the prosecuting attorney. I, I love this. Can I, can I use my imagination for a second? Here's, you know, I just picture this scene. The great white throne. Now, the devil's had a thousand years to get mad, Right? He's had a thousand years to work on his case, just waiting. And he finally gets out of, the, out of the brig, and he's standing in the courtroom. And he looks, and there's the judge, and it's Jesus. Now that's irony. Jesus, the one who experienced the greatest injustice that any human has ever experienced. If there was ever someone so undeserving of the death that he got, it was Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Accused and killed as a criminal. Never has someone so perfect been accused of so much wrong. 
And there he was. And now he's the judge. What does that tell you? That's vindication. Oh, crap. We, we, we killed him thinking he was the crook, and he turned out to be the judge. <laughs> okay, we're in trouble now, aren't we? You can tell. And here's the books with all of our sins, right? And here's the accuser who is ready to go. He's been waiting for a thousand years. And he calls up the first name. Kenny? Right? And you know, and you know, don't you, buddy? You know. You're like, well, I, I, I mean, I'm, 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 this is it. I'm guilty. I mean, and the devil and the, and the Satan, he throws everything he can at you. He throws it all at you. Jesus, don't you, do you remember that time he did this? Do you remember that time he said that? Do you remember that time he felt that way? He had that motive. You, did you, you saw that, Jesus, and the devil's working through every single crime. And then Jesus says, yeah, but I paid for him. <laughs> My blood covers him. And so he goes free. And the devil's like, okay, well, how about another one? Harless. Come on up, Harless. And he starts laying his best out at you. And he lays it out. And he's got a great case, doesn't he? I mean, the devil makes a great case. And yet Jesus goes, yeah, but I paid for him too. My blood covers that one. Person after person after person after person after person. And then the great irony is this. You, the devil wanted you to be damned to hell. And where does he go? Hell. Where do you go? Heaven. It's the greatest irony of all. I actually get off scot-free, and he takes the punishment that he wanted me to have. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. See, I, I'll never, wow. I, th I believe that's why the accuser is allowed out of the pit one last time, to do his worst, to try to make sure that, and think about what this does for you. Like, for all of eternity, what's this going to do to you? Like, you know that the devil did his best to damn your soul. You know it. You, you know it. They, they, he did everything he could, and still the blood of Jesus got you out of it. What does that do for you for all of eternity? See, you are vindicated. You are free. You are grateful. You are drawn to Jesus. His grace, his kindness, oh, my I, I owe him a debt that I could never pay. And he won't ever tell me how much it cost because he's so kind. And he pours out his kindness for all of eternity on you. Man, the Satan prosecutes in vain. The blood of Jesus clears my name. How great, how great the blessed thought my Jesus spilled blood has bought my freedom. Debt paid for every crime. Forever I am his, and he is mine. 
Hallelujah, huh? Amen. Charles Spurgeon said, consider how precious a soul must be that both God and the devil are after it. Consider how precious your soul must be that both God and the devil are after it. Man. So consider where we've been. I'm, I'm trying to bring notes together here. So consider where we've been in our study of Revelation. Can we put this together? We've been working through this. Remember, we were challenged weeks ago. We were challenged by the the loving rebuke of Jesus as he evaluated our lives. We felt that sting. And we said, oh, Jesus, we need to change. And then we've been all inspired. We were taken from that right away into the throne room. And we, our breath was taken away by the sight of the majestic throne of God in Revelation chapter 4. We've endured plague after plague after plague. And we have stood strong through it all when even the kings and the generals of earth prayed and asked for mountains to fall on them. What did God's people do? Stood tall and sang in the middle of it. We have rejected the promises of false religion. We have resisted the appeals of Babylon. We have clung to Jesus even in death. And we have stood against the accuser, the greatest accuser of accusers. And we have overcome. Truly, what can stop us? What can stop us? What can separate us from Christ? What can do it? Nothing. Nothing. See? So why do we apologize, my friends, for what we believe? Our beliefs win. See? Why do we fear getting canceled by the world? Who cares? Their opinions are the opinions of men. They don't matter. If the confidence I have in Christ offends the world, they have a choice. You can be inspired by it and follow me, or you can kill me if you want to. But listen, I will never apologize for the relationship that I have with Jesus. I am his and he is mine. See, my friends, what do we do with this, see? Now listen, next week, we're going to finish the wedding. The weird wedding, we're just in the middle. We got started. Our wedding got interrupted. And it finishes next Sunday. But where are we at right now? I think there's two things I think we can do. And worship team, you can finish. You can come and start. Yeah. I I tell you, I had so many notes about this. Okay, so there's two things I think that we can... uh, What does this mean for us now? Let me ask this question. What does this mean for us now? Okay, so we can look forward to heaven. That's going to be awesome, but what about now? I think it means two things. Two things we see in this today. First of all, Jesus is my champion Jesus is my champion. He fights for me. He fights for me. 
doesn't he? Do you see that? We see that as a clear theme, even as we come to the as we come to the end of Revelation here. You see it like over and over and over again. What one of the big motivating factors behind God's judgment against Babylon and the world and all that stuff is what? Is the way they treated his people. Isn't that something? So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And here in Revelation, we see God doing just that. He is avenging his people. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? Does that not make you feel loved? That the God of the universe comes to your defense? He's your champion. He's avenging you. All the times you were misunderstood and the time, you know, all that stuff, the God of the universe avenges you. Thank you, Jesus. He fights for me even to the death. He'll even interrupt our wedding to pound the devil. <laughs> That's your champion. The second thing that we see is he's my defender. He's my defender. When, listen, you know, when the judge... Go back to the judgment day, the great white throne of judgment. When the judge is your defender, like you got nothing to worry about. That's an easy day in court. <laughs> Did you track that? The judge is your defense lawyer. Okay, you're in good shape. The Satan does his best to try to get God to damn your soul. Yet in the end, it's the blood of Jesus that justifies and sets you free. Forever and ever, you will always remember that moment in court, and you will know that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. That will be a dramatic day. And that, my friend, puts the fight back into us. What do we have to lose? I mean, man. So let me just ask you a couple questions as we close here this morning. I think. I, want, I feel like the Lord's got, a, got something for some specific folks this morning. Maybe you feel like you're a stranger in your own home. Like things are just out of control in your home. And like you don't even belong in your own home, you know. You have authority. You have authority in your home. Rise up, man, woman of God. Begin to lead you're not a stranger in your own home. Take the authority that is yours. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Hear that. Okay? Maybe you feel stuck at work. Like, like you know, it's nothing more than just a paycheck. Your work is so much more than that. God has you there on purpose. You reign with Christ in that workplace. You reign with him there. So take the authority that is yours in Christ Jesus with, to work with you when you go. You are there on purpose. Maybe you feel like, the third one is weird, but maybe you hate your neighborhood. Like you don't belong there. Hear this. God put you there. Acts chapter 17, he's determined the exact times and places where men should live. You are in that neighborhood on purpose. Own it. You have authority in that neighborhood. Start praying for your neighbors. 
looking for opportunities to represent Jesus in their homes. Your home is a house of peace in that neighborhood. They need you. God put you there because they need you there. See, take your authority in Christ and walk in it. And lastly, you think school's a waste of your time. You reign with Christ in that place. It's a season. School's a season. You'll graduate soon enough. But use the season. Use the season for Jesus. Own it. He has you there on purpose. Use the authority that he's given to you in Christ Jesus and begin to reign in that school. And walk in tomorrow morning with confidence. You're there on purpose. You're not there by accident. And start to own it and look for where God's using you there. Do you see this? I believe this is the word for us now when I think about Jesus as my champion and my defender and that I reign with him, that I'm seated with him in heavenly places. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Jesus, I can't wait for our wedding day. And uh, that's going to be really an exciting day, Jesus. And now I'm really excited because I thought it was just going to be a boring wedding, but now there's going to be a fight. So I'm really excited about that, Jesus. And so I look forward to that day, Lord. But until then, Jesus, until then, I, I pray, God, that you would, that you would, Holy Spirit, would you impart courage into our hearts today? I pray. I pray for the one who came in this morning just deflated, defeated. Today, Lord, fill them, Holy Spirit, fresh, new, with your power. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.